Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process. Of course, your host, Greg Wareham. we got a great guest for you today, Mr. Michael Signorelli. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Thank you. It's great to have you. And look around, everybody. Look at the new set we put together for you. We'd appreciate if you dropped a few comments to let us know if you like it. We're pretty excited about it and hope you would like it as well. So, Michael, we had the opportunity to catch up. You're an architect. You're a consultant. you got all sorts of different things yes, going yes. on. Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, I'm a registered architect in New Jersey. I'm also a facade engineer, passive house consultant, and I work full-time at Paverney McGovern as our building envelope supervisor. Um, a construction management firm in New York City. All right, like how do you do three different jobs, Michael? <laughs> yeah, not enough hours in the day. Right? <laughs> Definitely That's not. why you go to the gym in the morning. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about your, your primary job that you have right yeah, now. I know absolutely. you work on a lot of high-profile buildings in Manhattan. Yes. Tell us yes. a little bit about it. Sure. So we're a Corn Shell um, high-rise uh, construction management firm. We sure. do a lot of building repositioning, um, Corn Shell fit-outs. Um, Primarily commercial, um, we do mm -hmm. condos and also some rentals, high-end rentals. Um, the scale of our jobs, they typically range anywhere between you know, 12 stories up to 60-story towers. Um, and for us, wow. we really, you know, any sort of job, a cookie cutter job, that's not really what we're interested in. We're yeah. interested in the more boutique, jewel box sort of jobs. Um, you know, the thing, the jobs that make it a little bit more tedious to think about, sure. understanding the logistics and the approach of the, the construction itself. Yeah, so your job, yeah. I mean, you have like $100 million jobs oh, yeah. plus, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. billion dollar jobs, yeah. these are big jobs. Yeah. So uh, we were talking a little bit off air before yeah. about a block in Jersey City. Yes, that yes. was purchased and you're converting it into 1,200 units. Yeah, yeah. So currently right now we have a lot of jobs where there's a lot of owners who are gauging the market in terms of commercial spaces, sure. what to do with all of these open, unoccupied buildings post-COVID. Sure. And the trend right now with a lot of these um, clients is to look at how do we convert these into residential units. So what does that actually mean? Right. You have a full block building. You know, Obviously the light and air compliance um, needs to be achieved. So it really tends to lean more towards cutting light wells in the building, similar to the space we're in, mm -hmm. adding a light well into it, getting that light and air requirement, mm -hmm. and you know converting it into apartment units. So the building we're working on downtown in Manhattan, that's um, an existing office building full block. Mm -hmm. We're adding, um, the, the interesting thing with that is once you convert it and you carve out the light well, you're gaining more FAR. So what's all that, that, now what's FAR? That's the uh, floor area. So okay, your allowable it, floor it. area. Yeah. Um, so pretty much all of that FAR that was lost from the light well, we're now adding on top of the building. So we're doing a 10-story overbuild okay. on this existing structure just based off of the FAR. All right, so clearly Michael's wicked smart because you bring up a great point post-COVID, yeah. right? So we got COVID, as everyone knows, yeah. people, they stopped going into the office. Yeah. And now we have a real surplus of buildings that are unoccupied, correct? Yeah, yeah. You know, because I know that commercial, we're really concerned about commercial real estate longer yeah. term. You see a lot of owners going in that direction, converting we, it? We do, yeah. There's, okay. it, it was interesting. A couple of years ago, we saw a lot of commercial work coming in. Right now, the condo and commercial scopes of work, they're kind of iced. We're seeing a lot of the jobs go on hold with that. Sure. We're seeing a lot more life science and also rental. So a lot of the rental work that we're seeing, it's more of that repositioning scope of work that I... Okay. I mentioned, yeah. So I get to go deeper on this 1,200 unit building. Yeah, so you yeah. get this huge block in Jersey City. It was a monster project that you're putting together. So now when the owner decides they want to convert this, yeah. they got to call you guys to figure out, okay, what's this thing going to cost me? Yeah, yeah. How do we put it all together? Yeah. What's the compliance associated with it? Because I would think residential space 
are there different codes for that than commercial space? There are in terms of the requirements for okay. the loads. Um, structurally, um, you know, you need to make sure the building is sufficient, especially once you're cutting a light well into it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you make sure you have the proper egresses, um, making sure there's proper path of safety to the ground. In terms of the requirements, um, otherwise not, not not too much pretty more similar. than what I mentioned. Yeah, it's pretty similar. From like a health and safety health standpoint. Health and safety, that's similar. primarily what yeah. you're looking for. Um, and then also just the, the light and air. That's really what it comes down to, making sure that you have a, a comfortable space for people to live in mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Now, what's and, the time frame associated with that? Because yeah. taking it from I want to do it yeah, yeah. to actually breaking yeah. ground. Yep. Yeah. So like you mentioned, um, the, how does that process and it essentially start for the most yeah, part. Yeah, how do you put yeah. it together? So the client will bring us in as a feasibility study for the most okay. part um, to take a look at it, whether or not they bought the property or they're looking to potentially buy the property. Mm -hmm. um, it'll all start with doing a walkthrough of the job, putting together a schedule, mm -hmm. an estimate, and then on top of that, the logistical approach for how we envision the job going. Mm -hmm. For the client, the, the main thing is the schedule and also the actual overall budget of right. the, the project. Cost and how fast. Exactly, those okay. are the main driving factors of it. And then once they get that understood, they then look for lending, obviously. Now, what's a project like? How long does something like that take? One like that, it takes, depending on whether or not you count pre-design, which would be the architect developing mm -hmm. the drawings ready for filing to the, the permit. I mean, that can take three years easily, three right. to three and a half years, depending on how, depending on the path, right? If, if there's a variance yeah. required, it may take a little bit longer, but in terms of cutting out light wells in a building, supporting the floor structurally, mm -hmm. um, you know, doing the full fit out. Infrastructurally, you're changing your mechanical systems, right. your plumbing, all of these sort of commercial buildings. Plus, there's not... individual units, exactly. right? So it's yeah, 1,200 yeah. units. I need yeah, separate yeah. heat. I oh, need yeah. separate AC. Yeah, I yeah. need individual plumbing. It's a lot, yeah, a like, lot of I mean, You need a lot of stuff. Yeah. Now, do they gut a building like that and start over, or do you kind of work with the existing structure? Like, what's you, your process yeah, when you look you at work... it? Probably whatever is the most cost-effective, timely way to do it. Exactly. still staying within code on it. I exactly. But the aesthetics are also a big part of it, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely. making sure that what you're building and developing is something that's not an eyesore and something that you know you can sell eventually. Yeah, and on both ends of it, so internally yeah. and externally, because oh, you yeah. get to Jersey City, I mean, people are going to pay oh, yeah. for individual units. It's yeah. expensive in that area right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, that's a, a hot market. So I live there currently, as, as I mentioned to you before. Yeah. And right now, from when I first moved there to now, it's it's crazy seeing how much you know the prices are escalating. It's changed. You know, the whole state of New Jersey, the whole yeah. country has yeah. changed pretty significantly over the course of the past several years. Yeah. So internally, we, we have to, you go through all these plans. I would imagine there's some type of rent analysis done on it if they're going to rent them out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They... Yeah, so our team, we also have an expert in building repositioning. Okay. And he'll take a look, like I mentioned before, about the floor area ratio, the FAR of the building. He'll take a look at that and assess if we're brought on board for a feasibility study and mm -hmm. it's just a commercial building where it's a, a white box, right? The full open floor plate. Okay. He'll develop an overall layout. So okay. once you cut in like a light well, for example, he'll say we can get per floor 20 units, 15 mm -hmm. to 20 units, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms at the corner. Yeah. And we'll use that as the basis of information we're feeding to our estimating team. And Makes they're sense. the ones building out the budget off of that. Now, does the cost change depending on what floor you're on and something like that? Or oh, is it absolutely. Kinda, okay. Yeah, yeah. In, in terms of uh, construction. Renting. Well, I know in renting, yes, and from a construction standpoint, so I'm looking at it like, okay, if I know I got 1,200 units as an example, yeah, yeah. and let's just operate in a presumption they're all the same. Yeah. So I built out one unit. Can I then just multiply that by 1,200, and that's probably my cost structure with it? Yeah, for the most okay. part. That's kind of how we look at doing it. Um, mm -hmm. There are certain things that may change at the corners of the buildings or as you get higher up, just based off of the um, 
the size of structure, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, so for example, the loading at the top of the building is a little bit higher than the lower floors of the building, so you need, may need reinforcements, stiffeners sure. in the wall. Um, you know, your pipe sizing may change a little bit, but it, it's not much else other than right. that. So I mean, the cost per square foot, it's gonna balance out equivalently. Okay, it's really fascinating, as there's so, yeah. much, so much involved with it. Oh, yeah. I get a question for you. Yeah. If you have enough money, can you basically do anything? Oh yeah, that's, that's what it seems like, right? I mean, right now it seems like that, yeah. Right, that's I mean, crazy. when you're going yeah. in, you're looking at this building, hey, I want this this wild stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. If you have the money to do it, from an engineering standpoint, you yeah. can probably make it work. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So it's I all about cost. It's all about cost. And what we're seeing right now with a lot of the clients, they're very much driven on the amenity spaces. So okay. as you said, can you do anything? They, they want to do anything and everything for the amenities because these are what are driving in people, whether or not it's for a rental or a commercial space. That's you know, a the great amenities point. are the, the driving factor right now to get people to either to move in or to come back to work in the office. So it used to be, I can remember when I was in school, they used to give you this example of like, here's the core business stuff you have to yeah. do, and here's like the periphery add-ons. Yeah. Like a yeah. hotel was always the example. Yeah. Yeah. So a hotel, you need a bed, and you need this, and you need that, but next thing is you need a hair dryer, and then you need, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. go out in the circle. I mean, when you're looking at these buildings they're putting together today, you obviously need all that core stuff. What is that additional stuff that's kind of almost become a requirement in some of these spaces? Well, we're seeing, uh, you know, pools, yeah. in-ground pools. Um, in the building. Yeah, in the building. Podcast studios, something like this, in the building. Really? That, that's a requirement, yeah, definitely. Um, Nick, we need a podcast studio in <laughs> Jersey City. Yeah. <laughs> that's a hot item, yeah. Um, basketball courts, you know, um, fitness centers, all of those sort of things that are smaller, um, amenities, they're now becoming just almost a, a requirement just because that's what people are leaning towards. That, that's how you get people back in the buildings. It's all about the lifestyle. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I guess I can really see that in that area because really that the lure of that area is your proximity to Manhattan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right, so you get that proximity to Manhattan, but you want to be able to go home and have everything. Yeah, exactly. Restaurants, are you seeing restaurants going into these types of buildings? Not many. Of course, no. okay. Yeah, no. It would, they would only be in the storefront levels, your, your ground sense. floor. That's really where you would have the amenity spaces. I, I think they, they don't want to mix the uses mm -hmm. and having you know potential um, just regular visitors of the building yeah. go up 20 stories and um, could potentially access certain yeah. floors. So they, yeah. they can't keep it uh, differentiated in a sense. That's a good point. Yeah. How about parking? How do they address that? Parking is a challenge, right? I right. mean, it's a challenge for everyone in Jersey City, Hoboken as well. So it, it really depends on the building. Some okay. of the lower levels of the buildings, based off of the FEMA requirements, mm -hmm. they're using those floors to accommodate parking. Okay. And then some of the spaces, just depending on where they are located, if it's an existing building, you're kind of married to it at that sure. point. So they, they try and get variances to allow you to, you know, mitigate or alleviate some of the parking requirements. Okay, yeah. that's fascinating, Michael. And yeah. I know that uh, their specialists is work on the inside at the company you work with. You're an exterior yeah. specialist. So we were talking a little bit off air before this about birds <laughs> yes. and some of the requirements with yes. birds because yeah. they fly into the windows. Yeah, yeah. And that, we can't have that. We can't have birds dying flying into the yeah. windows. So yeah. tell us it's, a little bit about that. It's interesting. That. Um, New York City, they've mandated Local Law 15, which yep. is a requirement now for glass on the exteriors of buildings. So it's called bird-friendly glass, which okay. is what they're utilizing for the lower 75 feet of your building, and then also at any sort of setbacks where you have green space. So essentially, mm. birds with the reflectivity of the glass, they're more prone to fly into it. In New York City, you see it all the time right. with existing buildings, you know, birds dead on the ground. Um, so right now what they're looking at doing is implementing dot patterns, either etch or frit onto the glass, mm -hmm. or also a UV coating, which the birds can see. It's not visible to the human eye. If you look at it in certain shades, you can see maybe a purplish tint, okay. but it's primarily visible to the birds. So 
They utilize tunnel testing where they set up a tunnel based on the birds' migratory paths over in you know the, the sticks of the state yeah. the sticks of the United States and they test this glass to make sure that the threat factor is low enough hmm. where the birds don't hit the glass. So it's interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah. fascinating because it does have. I know they yeah. birds fly into my bay windows of my house. Yes. And unfortunately, it'll kill the bird. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's great to see that they're doing something like yeah. that. Number one. But also from a cost standpoint, I think that starts to ratchet up the cost. It definitely everything. ratchets up the cost. We're seeing it adding another five to ten bucks a square foot based off of what system wow. you're using on the glass. So you know, if you're utilizing the UV, it may be ten dollars more. If you're utilizing a um, dot, that's maybe five bucks more. Okay. So we're seeing that, and we're also seeing electrochromic glass, which is something a little bit different where What's they, they actually have a, um, a film that's applied to the glass mm -hmm. and there's an electric charge that goes to each unit of glass um, and you're able to control it hmm. with an app or with a um, telecom on the roof and it's able to actually sense and detect where the sun is at different times of day and tint the glass based accordingly. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about being the exterior specialist. Yeah. I saw this show and it was about a building they built in Chicago. Okay. And it, apparently the heat reflection of the glass was so hot, yeah. it was literally melting other buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know the building you're talking about, yeah. It's like this red building. It's yeah. really, I forget what they called it. Yeah. But There's another one like that too, the walkie-talkie building, exactly the yeah. same thing. And that comes from you know poor planning and oversight in a sense where you're not doing your due diligence with the assessment and the analysis of the building itself. So, you know. You just focus on aesthetics. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. So I know one building, I, I believe it was the walkie-talkie one, they had the same issue and this is over in the UK. Mm -hmm. They actually wound up adding at each floor level louvers on the building to mitigate that reflection because it was doing similar to what you were saying. I think it was yeah. actually burning paint off of cars based like, off of yeah, the, uh, the like reflection. Ridiculously yeah. hot. Yeah, exactly. Now, so now when you're looking at things, yep. is that the type of stuff that you do, Michael? Yeah, yeah. Okay. so for us, what we do in terms of my role at Pepperoni yeah. McGovern Please. as a building envelope specialist, um, I'll be involved in the projects from pre-construction. So as I mentioned, we work either as a CM agent or a CM at risk, um, depending on which role we have. Now, what's we'll CM start, mean? Uh, construction manager. Okay, got yeah. it. So we'll start the job on the pre-con side, um, informing the client and the design team on constructability, um, evaluating the costs, mm. and also um, just the sequencing and phasing of the work. So we'll start very early on informing the design team. Once the design is developed and baked up to a certain point, mm -hmm. we'll take those drawings, go out to the street. We'll go out to maybe 10 bidders, say this is what we're thinking. We believe this is the most cost-effective way to do it. Mm -hmm. Can you achieve this? And at that point, you know, we'll look to then buy the project from them. So okay. it'll be more of a design assist based role. Got it. The design documents that are developed by the architect, they're more for, um, you know, schematic purposes, but those drawings aren't really what are being used to, to build the building. Okay. You know? Now, I get to walk through your kind of day in the life of, yeah. of Michael. <laughs> so, all right, so if you're looking at a, you're looking at a building, right? Yeah, yeah. So do you, you go outside, you're looking at it, do you start coming up with different ways to make it more appealing if you're going from commercial to residential? Yeah. Like, what's the process with yeah. that? Because there's a certain amount of artistic flair yeah. for what it is you do, plus yeah. the engineering and everything else. So Yeah, I think with that, it... It, depending on the use of the building, yeah. it's critical to understand, um, you know, the not only the use, but also the demographic you're trying to reel into the building. Sure. So if it's something that you want to have as like a class A high end space, yeah. you know, what are these finishes and what what does that pertain to? So are you doing more black and metal 
bronze? Mm. Is it terracotta? You know, if you have a building that's a little bit less, um, I don't want to say like a, a B, like a B style no, building or a C style there's building. There's different levels. Yeah, yeah, there's different levels. You, know, you want to be luxury. Exactly. If you want more luxury, you yeah, you want that stone, terracotta, mm. black and metal. Um, you, you don't really want to see um, stucco on the outside of your building. So right. those sort of things really inform the design. And when we're looking at it in terms of building repositioning, it's stating, you know, the existing building right now, is there anything you can reuse on the outside? Mm-hmm. Or are you completely ripping the, the skin off of the building. Right. If you're ripping the skin off, how does that play a role on the edge of your slab mm-hmm. <laughs> of the building? Sure. Like, are you needing to add additional reinforcement? And um, you know, it's a balancing game with that. Um, so when I, like you asked, when I go outside, am yeah. I thinking of these things? Yeah, I'm thinking of that and then also the life maintenance of the building. Sure. So if you have a giant piece of 10 by 10 glass in Manhattan, how are you replacing that glass if it breaks? Great so point. those are the, the items that I'm thinking of just yeah. based off of the construction management side where we're looking at more of the, um, the efficiency aspect and the future life for the client. Yeah. So that's what I'm primarily looking at. Yeah, so that makes total that sense. Or, so you how, make, how are you yeah. cleaning the glass? All these little <laughs> things. That's, that's what right. I think about. <laughs> Because, well, Which is a sense, crazy so. thing to think about. Yeah. Well, no, but people don't yeah. think about that, right? Yeah, oh my God, it's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I yeah. love the way it looks. Well, yeah, how are you going to fix it? How are you going to clean it? What's the maintenance involved yeah. in it? Because these exactly. big buildings have, there's high maintenance costs associated with keeping them in, not so they don't go into any type of disrepair. Oh, absolutely. And we're seeing a lot now where clients are looking at potentially glazing the building from the interior of the building. Okay. So when I say glazing, I mean the means that the glass is attached to the building itself. Okay. There's ways where it can be glazed from the outside of the building or the inside of the building. To secure the window. To secure the window. So they're looking at more or less ways to install the glass from the inside so if it does break, you can replace it from the inside, which mitigates That's the brilliant. Mitigates the need for having a building maintenance unit, dropping the building with buckets, having the guys clean it and access the, the glass from the outside. It breaks, the cranes, like there's so exactly, much involved yeah. with it. From yeah. the inside, it's much easier. Yeah, exactly. That's great. So what, what else goes on in your day today, Michael? Sure. So for certain jobs, like I mentioned before about the pre-con aspect of it, that's mm-hmm. one part of it. The design assist role. So our company will play a, an active role with the design team in developing the design assist. So once we bring the subcontractor on board, Mm-hmm. Um, we'll have design charrette meetings, depending on the job. I work on all of our jobs, so I manage mm-hmm. and direct the building envelope for Paverini McGovern. Um, so if we do a weekly charrette per project, developing the design, once we get to a certain point, those drawings are then released for fabrication. So okay. whether or not it be for a visual mock-up or a performance mock-up, obviously we're not gonna fabricate 100,000 square feet of the exterior of the building without the client signing <laughs> right. off on it. You know, the glass, the finishes, that's critical. So. Once that's established, I'll be involved in the review, the QC of the mm-hmm. mock-ups. Last week, I was over in North Carolina um, looking at metal for a church we're doing yeah. in over on 90th Street okay. um, by Central Park. Um, where else was I? Indianapolis, looking at brick <laughs> for right. another project. Sure. So it's really about the quality control and mm. the QCing of all of this material. You know, it's interesting, too, and it never occurred to me, like every individual component yeah. has to be fabricated. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's not like you're not walking into Lowe's and buying this no, stuff. No, not at all. There's companies, you, hey, this is what we want and you gotta yeah. roll these things off your assembly line. Exactly, and the coordination That's of that expensive. is critical. It's very expensive. Yeah. But you think about the coordination, right? Like you're essentially turning the keys over to a subcontractor who doesn't know the job, doesn't know why you're doing certain things right. on the job, and you're expecting them to fabricate your project. Right. And everyone is expecting material to be on the job site within eight months, right? Right. So 
getting them up to speed and making sure the client is comfortable, the design team is comfortable, that's something we need to liaison in the process as the construction manager. And nothing can be, like you can't even be off an eighth of an inch on something. Yeah. It has to be yeah. perfect. Exactly, yeah, for but certain items. Fit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's what we have to look at, the yeah. tolerances, making sure that within the scope of work, we're buying out the correct construction tolerances. Mm -hmm. So for concrete, you have to automatically assume that the concrete can be in or out of tolerance by an inch. Sure, right? Just okay. a matter of fact. And for the exterior of the wall, these guys have such tight tolerances because, you know, panels, mm. they're stacking, you know, the, the wall needs to be plumb. So their tolerances are much tighter than that, but they need to accommodate for that in case the concrete is out. Sure. So for us, looking at that in regard to constructability, that, that's big for us. So I'm thinking, so you're doing, if you're doing a high rise in Jersey City, yeah. or you're working on something in Manhattan, yeah. wind is an issue. Wind is a big issue, yeah. Have you heard of Gallup and Gertie? <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> so Gallup and Gertie was this iconic bridge, out, I think it was out in Washington State, Michael, okay. where they didn't account for winds over a certain mile per hour. Jeez. In the video, you're gonna have to Google it later. Yeah. Look at yeah. it, check out the Google machine, it'll tell you. But it, it, it starts swinging, eventually the whole thing snaps and tumbles to the ground, because they didn't account for the wind correctly. So it's actually interesting because for high rises they'll do a couple of different things. We'll start with the theoretical calculations for the wind loads of the building. Okay. There's assumptions for the superstructure and then assumptions for the cladding. So your windows, your glass, your metal, all of that sort of stuff. There's a okay. secondary assumption. Um, you'll start with those theoretical calculations and then from there you'll take the overall massing of the building and they'll do a wind tunnel test. Mm -hmm. So they'll actually model out with small little pieces of wood, mm -hmm. a, a large footprint of the context of the block. So huh. you'll model your building, the surrounding buildings, and then they'll actually put it in a wind tunnel. And they like have a physical wind a tunnel. A physical wind tunnel, and they have sensors on these little blocks, yeah. and it's very accurate. You're able to actually depict and calculate the correct wind loads based off of that. that and then info, you just scale the thing up. You scale it up. That yeah. info is then provided to the subcontractor who's doing the work. Yeah. and they validate it and they design all of their structural uh, elements based off of that. That makes sense. Yep. And then once we get into performance mock-ups, so there's a couple of different approaches. You have the visual mock-up, which is to approve and release the visual aesthetics. So your finishes of glass, the color is okay, the tint, um, your metal panel, if the finishes are okay, constructability, if everything looks clean, minimal, mm -hmm. everyone's happy with that. Once that's done, then it's released for performance mock-ups. Okay. And the performance mock-up really validates the performance of the system. So your air performance, your water, and then the acoustics, right? So when you're doing the air and water testing, they have a couple of different standards. One being the dynamic testing, where they actually set up a giant jet engine right, in front okay. of the in front of the mock-up. The mock-up can be one or two stories. Mm -hmm. You blow air at it, and you have a spray rack of water set up in front of it, and it's supposed to simulate hurricanes. Okay. okay. Yeah. So that's an AMA. That that's uh, the AMA standard, AMA 501.2, and AMA. And they're still doing this in ag physically, right? It's yes. not just computer generated. You have to okay. Physically, yeah. So wow. there's testing agencies. It's interesting if you go to uh, York, Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's they, these people live off of this. There's so multiple do. testing. Yeah, it's what they do. That you would air be conditioning a, units. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it though. You yeah. go out there and you see all of these mock-up facilities and parts and components of buildings being tested. It's it's amazing actually. That's pretty cool. And you bring yeah. up a good point too with the acoustics. Yeah. I, I recall a building out in LA that was built, I think it was a Disney building that was built out there, and the acoustics were, for whatever reason, when sound came across this building, yeah. it like resonated this horrible sound, yeah. and they had to fix it. Yeah. And you don't, these are little things that you don't think about as a consumer, you don't think about it, yeah. right? Absolutely, it's critical for us in terms of apartment buildings, yeah. making sure that you don't have flanking in the walls, making sure acoustically that rooms are comfortable and you know, they're efficient. Mm -hmm. So for one of our jobs we're repositioning right now, we're 
redoing all of the windows, new ribbon windows across the entire building. Okay. Now those windows obviously are dying into a wall. Sure. If, if it's a ribbon, how, how do you terminate that? And what is being used to damper and buffer acoustically between the rooms? So right. coordinating all of that and making sure the contractor can, you know, properly assess and simulate it, it's critical. So we're doing a small mock-up for the acoustics to make sure you can't actually hear any flanking room to room. Sure, very makes sense. Yeah. I was I watched too much TV apparently, <laughs> but, so I was watching this show, and they were they were looking at different earthquake proof buildings, and they literally have like this damper that weighs some amazing amount of weight yeah. to try and stay. It actually moves yeah, and stabilizes yeah. depending on the shaking in the building. And they did it for wind. They did it for a lot of different things. Really remarkable. Yeah, yeah. When I actually worked as a consultant, we did a job over in Santa Monica, mm -hmm. and we had to do actually that. Um, Crescendo test, it's called, okay. I believe. It's uh, AMA 507, I think. And they actually that's have two stories of the building. Right. Yeah, that's your <laughs> two <laughs> stories of the building, and they actually calibrate the sway to, to make that's sure right. that the building doesn't rack and the exterior glass doesn't break as the building shifts. That's great. That's, that's amazing how detail oriented everything is. Oh, yeah. So Nick asked me a question. He's <laughs> off camera and he yelled it at me. He threw something at me, actually. You know, I don't take that personally, Nick. I love you. You know that. And he's asking about that building in New York City that was sinking yeah, a little yeah. bit. Like, what happens? Like, how does that happen? It happens a lot with the, it starts with the soil, right? I mean, right. making sure that the loads being applied directly to the soil can bear the capacity that you're putting onto it. Mm -hmm. And the building, this is, I believe the building is located over near Battery Park. Mm -hmm. They're building, it's a high-rise building. And as they started doing the structure, there was differential settlement and the building actually started sinking. So. You know, at that point, it raises the question, what do you do? You have a building halfway up, right. you have the glass on your building, you have interior finishes on the building. How can you actually support and underpin this building while you have all of this taking place? Right. It's very costly to do. Sure. And to evaluate that, it's, it's a challenge. It's fixable, though, for the right cost. It is fixable for the right cost. Okay. But the thing is, at that point, it's who's to blame. Do you blame the concrete subcontractor? Mm -hmm. Do you blame the structural engineer? Right. Do you blame the general contractor? Right. There's a lot of finger pointing. Yeah, and I did say that. It's hard it's to- it's big money to- Very big yeah. money to do something like that. So I can understand right now, probably the client, they, they don't have the stomach to, to just pay it out of their pocket. Sure. That, that's a, you know, who, who would be able to consider that at the top there? 10% of the, yeah. the building value to, yeah. to no, no repair about and, it. and underpin the building. So in New York City, when you're building a high-rise, yeah. you have to drill pilings into the, there's bedrock yeah. that you have to drill it into. Yeah. Correct? It depends. On certain okay. jobs, you have to drill into the bedrock. Other ones, you're doing either like a, a mat slab or just uh, mm -hmm. micro piles where there's small piles going directly down, just enough to support the loading. It depends on the area because there's a lot of bedrock midtown. Yeah. As you go lower, there's not as much bedrock and there's more water. Uh, makes, sense, so makes sense. For a lot of our jobs, if it's uptown, we, we don't have an issue with, um, like you said, the bedrock mm -hmm. or water. But downtown, once you actually have a hole in the ground, it can be you know, 12 feet down, 15 feet down. You're pumping. You you're pumping water. Yeah. Not How do you, so then, what do you pour concrete in it as you're pumping the water out? You pump it. You have pumps that go in first. Right. You excavate down to the point where you need to, and mm -hmm. as you're pumping, then you start doing your waterproofing layer, your rebar, and you start to pour. And at that point, once you get this stuff out, I know it's, it, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, though, this I don't know if you can answer this question, but <laughs> I was driving in the city with my family within the within the past month. Yeah, and we're going through the tunnel, and every time I go through the tunnel, I, I think we're going through. We may be going through the Lincoln on the way there, not the Holland, but e either one. I'm thinking, how'd they build this? <laughs> like, how do you do? You go under the bedrock. 
to, to build it? Like, how do you build the tunnel and the water doesn't just crush the whole thing? You know, I go through that 100 tunnel. years ago. I go through the tunnel every day. Yeah. And as I go through it, I think to myself, I need to YouTube how they built this. We're doing it after this show. Yes, exactly. We're going to figure this out. I would love to figure that out. But it is amazing. And it's 100 years ago they're doing this. 120, however long ago. And they're talking right now about building a new tunnel, I believe, closer towards Weehawken. Oh, really? Yeah, going directly They could use one. Yeah, definitely. Based off all the congestion, they need something else. Hey, from a so different buildings have different construction, there's different contractors used. Uh, I don't know if this is a question you can answer, but as a consumer who's going in to buy a unit yeah. in one of these buildings, are there things that they could look for that could identify the quality of the construction that was done to it? It's hard if the consumer is going in because they're going in at the end of the project, right? right? I mean, they can potentially ask for, ask for project reports, mm-hmm. so in any terms of any sort of inspections that may have been done, you know, punch listing from the architect, mm. understanding and assessing what has been reviewed previously. Sure. By the time they come in, you know, it's the, the lipstick is it's already a, on the pig. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's hard to tell what has been done with the walls yeah. up, you know. No, it's a good point. Yeah, so it's a challenge. I mean, they can, you know, do their best efforts of, you know, checking all the hardware and the windows, making sure everything locks properly, making sure there's no water. I mean, it's always an indicator for staining. You know, if you see yeah. staining on the windows or around the sill, sort of, anywhere, on the sill, yeah. exactly on the mullions themselves, mm-hmm. if you see any sort of issue with the ceiling, stuff like that. But I guess at the end of the day, you just have to trust the process. You have to trust that the process. It was process, done yeah. correctly, and it becomes so much more. It's just so scaled up, right? Because you yeah. buy a single-family home. Yeah. You know, you can just go through it in much more detail to look at everything. You really can't do it in a, in a big complex that's been put together. Exactly, yeah. It depends really on the pre-qual process that we take on board when mm. we're awarding these subcontractors, right? Making sure that the people we're awarding are, you know, fit to do the job. So for us, I mean, I, I don't want to guarantee you, but I think a lot of our projects, you know, they... Phenomenal they're, they're quality. Phenomenal, exactly. Phenomenal and you quality. pick all the contractors and everything like that? We usually do. We'll look for what subcontractor is the best fit on the job, mm-hmm. whether it's union, non-union, mm-hmm. um, and assess, you know, well, based off of the scope of work. great that you work with both, too, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, you're, it's a big company that you work with. Yeah, yeah. So we do a lot of, like I said before, high-rise uh, yeah. repositioning work. We've recently, we're in process of completing a job over in Times Square, mm-hmm. um, TSX, 1568 Broadway. Okay. And this job, it's very exciting, where we took an old theater jacked it up 30 feet, okay. built new retail below it, and then on top of that, we did an overbuild of another 30 stories. And this was an existing theater Amazing. and hotel space, so we demoed down the existing to the 16th floor, yeah. rebuilt on top of it. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing what can Beautiful. be done, Yeah. right? I, I grew up in the in the south of Boston, the Boston area. When they were doing the big dig, I had just moved, really kind of moved out, but it had been a project that went on forever. Yeah. But just the ability for people to plan the water just in and of oh, itself, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, how do I plan in an old town, Boston, yeah. New York City, yeah. how do you renovate that, right? Yeah. And just the engineering that goes into it, it's really mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, no, it really is. And I think it really starts from, it, it, there's two things to that, right? It's mm-hmm. understanding when you're going to be building, right? Well, Are exactly. you going to be building in the summer, in the winter? Mm. What? How does the climate play a role in what you're constructing? <laughs> That's and then, point. Yeah, and then two, like how is the design itself informed by that climate, right? right. I mean, with all of that water, are they doing different um, wet or dry flood mitigation methods to make sure that you're not gonna get water in once it's occupied. And then also accounting for different expansion and retraction. Oh yeah. Right, because you're building in the winter, it's contracted, right? It expands in the summer, and you gotta factor all that stuff in. We see that a lot with certain jobs where, you know, depending on what time of year, it's 
constructed mm. where things are put on the building, or even if you give it a couple of cycles um, where you know you potentially have glass breaking right. just due to the um, shoulder seasons, which is the spring or the fall, you know, the glass on your windows, depending on the material used, the, sure. uh, it's called nickel sulfide. That's, okay. It's a material uh, within the glass. And it, it's pretty much based off a of thermal shock, right? So if you have the temperature drop significantly at night where you have 30, 40 degree temperatures, once the sun hits in the morning, if that glass is spiking up to 80, 90 degrees, the glass can spontaneously break just right. based off of the expansion of the nickel sulfide in the glass. Hmm. So we had a couple of jobs where that happened, where you know, 10, 12 pieces of glass broke and we're replacing them based wow. on that. So yeah, I'm thinking it's just, hard, it's hard to, you can't really factor or gauge that sort of thing. Well, you know, you know I just thought of the desert, like you're building something in Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, that's massive temperature swings that you have to Absolutely. account for yeah. and how the elements, you know, the structure that you're building, how they're gonna react to all that. Yeah, yeah. And you get a, a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to, yeah. to accommodate that. So what we typically do with the performance mock-ups, as was mentioned before, we yeah. do the static air, the water, and also the um, the thermal testing. So the okay. thermal testing is an additional one, and also the acoustics I mentioned. So the thermal testing, they'll put sensors inside of it, inside of the mock-up itself, yeah. and they thermally cycle it. So they'll do temperature swings from zero degrees up to 220, zero, 220, zero, 220, and they do it for about a week. Okay. And you actually assess the expansion and contraction of the materials and make sure that nothing is significantly compromised over time. Right. Yeah. And yeah. once that's done, then you redo the water testing to They're make sure. They're probably almost doing it on a microscopic level too. Is there yeah. some sort of hairline fracture? Something, that, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Where you really got to go deep and look at it. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Now, uh, from an architect standpoint, you're an, you're an architect. Yeah, yeah. You design single family homes? Yeah, so yeah, single family homes, you yeah. know, looking at, um, you know, zoning yeah. analysis. Um, you work with real estate agents with zoning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like so if a real estate agent has any questions in regard to zonings, like I mentioned to you earlier, you know, it's interesting because right now the current trend in the market is a lot of real estate agents looking to list off-market properties. Sure. So for them, it's really what can you gain? What's the best bang for your buck out of these properties? So it it's an interesting approach to it where mm -hmm. they want to start, you know, from zero saying we have this lot, what's the potential mm -hmm. of it? and sell it based off of that. So, right. so it'll be doing that analysis and then also maybe doing renderings or some sort of charrette with that to take a look at. And you can um, do all that. Yeah. He does. Yeah. Are you open for people reaching out to you if they have any questions about you know needing an architect or real estate agents that have questions about these things? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's really amazing, Michael. Yeah. Hey, is there anything that we're missing about the process at all, what you do? I know it's complicated. You probably talk about it for hours. Um, I, I think the the one critical component that we didn't touch on is actually building it, right? So mm. once we get the superstructure up and we're doing stuff on the exterior of the building, um, you know, what, what does that equate to? So getting the material to site, making sure we're hitting schedule, right? Because you wanna make sure you're one hitting schedule, but you're also hitting it in a way where you're building safely mm. and also making sure quality isn't compromised. Sure. So those are the, the critical aspects to us. I mean, the inspection levels with what go on must yeah. be amazing. It's very thorough. We have inspectors every day on jobs. Have you ever walked into a project that's being done, you're like, that's not right? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Just seeing it in Manhattan all the time. Yeah, just walking around. On our jobs especially, like, yeah. you know. What's you part of you, have, what you do, Yeah, right? exactly. You have to be um, thorough and understand, look, if it takes a week for them to fix something, it's it's, Required, so we got to do it. So. I mean, the contractors see you coming, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I <laughs> like what I did." Yeah. Well, uh, thankfully for us, when we sign on board the contracts, we yeah. we tell the subs, "Look, we're not looking um, for somebody to yell at. We're looking for a partner. So we're yeah. trying to bring a partner on board, someone who's just as ambitious and you know, 
uh, appreciative that we're getting the opportunity to build these jobs. So, so Michael, we're living in the world of eco-friendly, rightfully so, with yeah. climate change and everything like that. What are some of the things that you have to do with construction now to make sure it's eco-friendly? Yeah. What's the process on that? There are a couple of different certification paths for mm. making sure a building is eco-friendly, and these certification paths eventually lead to tax credit incentives to the owners. So what we're Got seeing it. is a lot of owners going the route of doing a LEED building. LEED being, um, it's, uh, lead accreditation or certification. Mm -hmm. They have different criterias um, going from silver to platinum. And it's really based off of the procurement path and the uh, carbon emissions of the materials you're getting. How okay. is that material um, fabricated? Is there any sort of off-gassing VOCs? It goes that deep. It goes very, very wow. deep, yeah. So they'll base it off of that, you know, water being utilized if it's close to transportation hubs. Mm -hmm. How are you actually accessing the building? Mm -hmm. um, those are critical for us to look at with LEED. Um, there's well as well. Mm -hmm. And well looks at the health and uh, comfort occupancy levels. So, you know, there's proper ventilation in the buildings, airflow, light, um, green, whether or not you have vegetative spaces. Right. Um, that, that's what they would look at with well. Um, there's okay. also passive house. We're seeing a lot of passive house now. What's that mean? Passive house, it's a certification where you're building the building extremely airtight to mm -hmm. mitigate any sort of leakage in the building. Okay. So your temperature within a passive house building, um, it's typically around 70 degrees mm -hmm. throughout the year and it's based off of the insulation you're using in the wall um, the airflow circulation with your mechanical systems and high-performing windows and that's great the government yeah. state local government yeah. kind They're, of incense all of that exactly. federal government incense yeah, all of yeah. that. yeah and even um, the electrochromic glass which I mentioned before that's yeah. something right now that they're utilizing an investment tax credit in New York where if you utilize that product you can save 30 to 40 percent depending on if it's fabricated domestically and if the material you're installing is domestic too. So That's great. It's it, great that they're doing this. Yeah. You know that it's great yeah it's great that they're doing all these things to preserve the environment with yeah. climate change going on right now have you seen things change with when you can do work or how's that impacting the business negatively if at all? Not really. I okay. mean for us it's schedule first always. So right. in terms of climate change, it's not really impacting us. We, we notice a lot during the pre-design and pre-construction that the thermal analyses and models that are being performed are mm. now taking into these more extreme temperatures mm. and temperature swings. So understanding when you may have condensation on the inside of your glass, sure. that's changing a lot now because of these temperature swings. That makes sense. Yeah. In New York City as well, they've also changed their building code to accommodate for more insulation stricter R values for your wall, which mm -hmm. is the resistivity, and the glass, so your U value on the glass. Is anybody worried at all about sea levels rising? Is there any, do you hear anything about that? Not really, I haven't heard much about that. Okay. I know they, based off of the FEMA requirements, so, that, that's really what we're focusing on. So whether or not we're sense. doing wet or dry flood proofing, barriers, or if the glass is mm. aquarium style glass, which is what they call it, where the glass is um, fully structurally sealed and water can't get into it. But it's hard because even if you design based off of that, you're also looking more at, it's not just the flooding, right? It's the, the impact of debris hitting the building, whether right. or not you have a garbage Great can point. Yeah. going adrift, right? I was reading an article the other day about the Greenland ice sheets, okay. and apparently they thought these things had been under ice for millions of years. Yeah. Come to find out they've only been under the ice for about 418,000 years because they were able to find the organic material going that far back. And as the sheets start to melt, yeah. If all of the ice in Greenland was to melt, it would raise sea levels, they say anywhere from 15 feet to 30 feet. Yeah. And you know, you could see 100 years from now, you know, if we don't make some changes yeah. as, a, as a culture, as a yeah. people, these sea levels will rise and 
and no, really, your whole engineering end of it, that's gonna have to even go to another level to protect oh, these yeah. cities. Well, I, I was even reading an article recently talking about New York 2050. Yeah. And they were stating that the sea level rise is going to be so immense that, you know, we're, we are gonna lose coastline. Yeah. Jersey as well. Um, and it's how do you actually manage it, right? I mean, right. you have to have some sort of way to manage and uh, lessen the blow. And it's hard right exactly. now because there's so many homes, especially along the Jersey Shore, sure. that you know people have invested a lot of money into. What are they going to do? You can't just sell your property and uproot based off of something you're projecting 50 years out. Exactly. Right? So it, it's hard to. You know, to yeah, you have that whole unknown with it, right? Are yeah. they really going to go up that high? What's really going to happen? We mm -hmm. don't know. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Interesting. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't change. Yeah, it's exactly. It well, that. it's changing the whole vernacular down the yeah. shore, right? I mean, you're now building up uh, an extra story with yeah. uh, a space beneath just to mitigate any sort of that water since Sandy happened. No, it's a great point. Yeah. I mean, you know, you come from the Jersey Shore area. Yeah. You know, they raised everything. Yeah. Changed the whole FEMA flood maps, obviously yeah. all changed and everything like that. Yeah. So, you know what? I got to tell you, Michael, it's been a real pleasure. You know, Thank getting you. to know you and talk to you, and I'm, I'm very impressed by how smart you are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. No, I appreciate it. <laughs> it's fantastic. Hey, and if people are interested in any type of architectural planning or anything like that, Michael yep. would be more than happy to talk to people. Correct? Absolutely. And yeah, feel free if you're interested also in any of the other work I do at Paverney McGovern. Um, we're open to help with any sort of projects in That's any, fantastic. any shape or form. Would you be kind enough to give your email address again? Sure. Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot A dot Signorelli, S-I-G-N-O-R-I-L-E at gmail.com. Thank you so much for, thank you. for helping us. It was Absolutely. very informative. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed this a lot. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, everyone, for watching. Look forward to catching up with you next week with your mortgage process. Greg Wareham, Michael Signorelli. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process, hosted by Greg Wareham, produced by Greg Wareham and Nick Pavise at The Social Rift, and executively produced by The Social Rift. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to catching up with you next week.